Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Organised Crime, Mediation and Violence. Is mediation an avenue for tackling violence? Hi all, welcome to 24 Hours on Organised Crime and especially to this panel on organized crime mediation and violence. Is mediation an avenue for tackling violence, lessons learned and best practice? So welcome, we will have a very, very interesting panel uh, with four person and we hopefully uh, wait that Yvette Chazon can make it. Apparently she's having some connectivity issues, but it is my pleasure to introduce to you all the panelists that will be sharing their knowledge and their experience with us today. So a very warm welcome to uh, Major Oscar Escobar. Oscar Escobar is the Major of Palmira, 20th city in Colombia. And he's leading a citizen security prevention strategy named PASOS that use mediation as a tool to deal with organized crime. Uh, also, please welcome Juan Camilo Koch. Juan Camilo is the director of Alvarez Foundation, and he has been implementing the Cure Violence methodology through the Abriendo Caminos project in the city of Cali, also in Colombia. And we also welcome Benjamin. Benjamin is the head of learning and expert advisory support in the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. And finally, we welcome Yvette Chesson, who is the establishment coordinator of the influential Liberian-based Angie Brooks International Center for Women Empowerment, Leadership, Development, International Peace, and Security. As I mentioned before, uh, we hope that Dr. Yvette can make it and can join soon the panel today. But once again, welcome. Uh, we will do a catwalk session, so every one of our panelists will present their own experience for around 10 minutes. And to the, all the assistants, feel free to pose your questions through the chat or through the Q&A uh, app or button that you can see in the bar. So for a start, we welcome Benjamin Smith. Benjamin, thank you for being here with us. Um, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks very much, Felipe. Uh, hopefully you can all hear me clearly. Uh, thanks very much to the organizers to, for inviting me. Thanks to Felipe. Uh, as Felipe said, I work for the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. And I have a few roles there, but most recently I started a program uh, within this organization uh, looking at the issue of crime and peacemaking. And so that's that's uh, what I'm going to be talking to you about uh, today. Um, before I start, I should say that I'm talking to you very much from the perspective of a, of a mediator rather than any sort of anti-crime perspective. Uh, although I, I did used to work for the UN Office on Drugs and Crime. In fact, I'm wearing a UNODC t-shirt today, just by chance, pure pure chance, not not trying to push any branding or any, <laughs> or any issues there. Um, but... Um, Perhaps I think before I start, it would be helpful to very briefly introduce my organization because I think that will give a clearer idea of my perspective and, and, and where I'm coming from. So uh, the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, uh, we call ourselves a private diplomacy organization, but at our core, what we do is mediation 
and dialogue. Uh, so essentially, we we broker deals for peace. And typically, we mediate between governments, uh, armed groups, uh, and opposition parties to resolve conflict. Uh, and we specialize in dealing with the hardest to reach, hardest to reach groups on the hardest to solve issues. And we're very much global, so we're, we're present in in forty conflicts all over the world. So what you'll get from me today will be that sort of global mediator perspective. Um, and I think what can be valuable is to get a sense of where this issue sits in the minds of most mediators uh, and how uh, I'd also like to give you a sense of the debate that is underway in a lot of mediation organizations precisely about this issue of, of mediating with criminal groups. So at its heart, I think there are three questions that are relevant and I'll try and address today. Question number one is, can you mediate or negotiate with criminal groups to reduce violence? Question two is, should you negotiate or mediate with these groups? And question three is, if you can, and if you should, how do you go about doing it? So what are some of the best practices and some of the lessons? Um, what I'm gonna say, partly because my perspective is global and partly because some of these engagements are confidential, Unfortunately, what I am going to deliver will be a little theoretical today, but I'm hoping that my fellow panelists will be able to fill you in on some concrete details of their particular cases uh, uh, by way of balance. Um, before we get into it, I just want to touch upon a quick issue of definitions. Um, obviously, the title of this panel mentions mediation. I'm also going to talk about negotiation. Um, so by way of a reminder, negotiation is a bargaining process where two or more parties try and resolve uh, a conflict by giving and taking, by bargaining, basically. And mediation is, is the same, but what you're doing is you're bringing in a third party, an impartial third party, uh, whose job it is to facilitate the process. Um, uh, and this third party should be impartial in the sense they don't have a particular dog in the fight, as you say. They're not part of the conflict. Um, so I'll talk about both, but I'll, I'll focus in a little more on mediation towards the end. So going back to my three main questions, question one, can you use the tools of dialogue to reduce violence? So um, mediation and dialogue have proven them very proven themselves very effective tools at dealing with what we call political violence around the world. So, you know, typical civil wars or wars between countries. And this is quite a well-established field, which is reasonably professional and has exploded sort of in size since the end of the Cold War. Uh, and as, uh, uh, although it has faced some more challenges recently, which, which I'll explain. Um, so historically, most of the world's mediation actors, uh, such as the relevant parts of the UN that I used to work for, or, or private diplomacy organizations such as HD, have largely ignored the issue of organized crime. And this is despite the fact that increasingly criminal violence accounts for a larger and larger share of global violence. Um, so the short answer of whether the tools that are used to mediate and negotiate political violence can be used to mediate or negotiate in the context of criminal violence, the short answer is yes, I think. And there are a number of examples that would suggest this. So there's several cases in Latin America, some of which I think you'll hear about today. Um, my first case that I was involved in or, or familiar with was in Timor-Leste, in 2006, where uh, a deal was brokered by NGOs between martial arts gangs, uh, which reduced 
but did not eliminate violence. And, and there's recent examples I'm also familiar with from, uh, slightly familiar with from Bangladesh, uh, where the government negotiated with uh, piracies, piracy organizations to, to reduce violence. So clearly you can do it. Uh, and in a sense, the more interesting question is the next question is that should you use uh, the tools of dialogue to reduce violence? caused by organized crime. And this is a little more controversial and a little more complex. And to be honest, for many mediators who are used to political uh, mediations, uh, this is a bit of an elephant, elephant in the room, by which I mean it's an issue that's too big to ignore, but a lot of mediators don't really quite know how to deal with this. Um, there are many reasons for this, but I'll highlight three main reasons why this is problematic for a lot of mediators. One, it's a question of legitimacy. So um, typically criminals are not viewed as legitimate actors with legitimate grievances. And by talking to them, you're potentially bestowing them with legitimacy that they, they don't deserve in, in, in many people's eyes. Whereas with political insurgencies, there's a tendency to view their concerns as legitimate and to some degree based upon a, uh, popular support. Uh, the second reason uh, why, why it can be problematic for mediators is to do with conflict resolution and end state. So how do you fully resolve criminal inspired violence through dialogue? And for a political group, there's a sort of an established path of how you do this. There's a standard model, if you will, which is that you have negotiations, often followed by demobilization and disarmament of the, of the insurgent group, followed then usually by the transformation of this group into a political party. Now, what is the equivalent of that with criminal groups? What can a transition look like for a criminal organization? The lack of answers to that have, have, have uh, proven a barrier, I think, to a lot of mediators. And the third issue is one of safety. So there's a sense that the sorts of mediators, uh, the sorts of methods that, that a lot of mediators use to ensure their safety may not apply when dealing with criminal organizations. And there are concerns about the legal implications of working uh, with criminal groups or advising them or mediating them with them. Um, and interestingly, just as a sort of side observation, there's a very similar parallel discussion happening now about mediating with Islamist jihadist groups, which is actually quite parallel in some ways, and there's similar concerns and similar solutions. So um, addressing these concerns, while I recognize them as being somewhat valid, I would argue that the nature of global conflict has changed so much in recent times that then the type of work that mediation actors do, that these concerns that mediators have aren't so valid anymore. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, the days of sort of simple um, intrastate conflicts between a single armed group with a clear political ideology and a government, these days have largely gone. Um, so in many, if not most conflicts these days, there's a very blurry line between armed groups uh, and organized crime on the one hand and governments and organized crime on the other. So in places like Myanmar, for example, where we're very active, you see armed groups uh, with political objectives using crime to fund themselves and slowly the crime becomes the objective rather than the political objective. And in places like the Sahel, uh, you have what we call criminalized political uh, jihadist insurgencies where political criminal and jihadist ideological aims are all mixed up together in a single group uh, and different objectives dominate at different times. So. All this means that conflict right now is very fragmented. It's very complex. There's multiple armed groups. Uh, there's regional, often regional involvement in conflict, which makes it very difficult to mediate. Um, and as a result of this complexity, there's far fewer comprehensive peace agreements. So far fewer of, of the transitions that I mentioned where armed groups become political parties. Um, so mediators have had to adapt to this reality and they've done so by moving to the local level 
and by focusing on less comprehensive resolution and more on uh, uh, smaller discrete objectives such as reduction of violence and, and associated humanitarian aims. So quite recently, for example, uh, we brokered a deal between two armed groups in Asia um, and these, these groups are allegedly political, but we knew that the deal that we were breaking was basically they were fighting over drug routes. Um, and, you know, the real interest of the groups is in generating money through illicit rest, rents, through controlling drug routes. Um, so in some ways, uh, this distinction isn't so clear anymore between political groups and criminal groups. And it's just a question of labels or perhaps public perceptions that divides political conflicts in many people's minds from, from criminal ones. So I'll, I'll come on to the last question now. I've, I've sort of addressed the can and, and the should. Uh, another question is the how. So, uh, and, and I think from our sort of growing body of knowledge on this, the lessons are that what works or doesn't work in political negotiations is broadly true of uh, uh, criminal negotiations or, or mediations with criminal groups. Um, and I'll, I'll mention some of these sort of lessons. So typically, before you begin, you need a strong assessment. You need to ask yourself, what is the, the risk versus the benefit of going ahead? What can realistically be achieved uh, uh, as well? You need to be very clear about your objective. And, and a key question is, is the group cohesive enough to survive negotiations? Because often, uh, if groups don't have strong enough command and control, uh, negotiations will put a lot of stresses on the groups, they'll splinter, they'll fragment, and you'll have an unsuccessful negotiation and a more complex conflict environment afterwards. So those same sort of questions, I think, are, are valid for, for when you're mediating or negotiating with, with organized crime groups. Um, and I just want to dig into this idea of risks a little bit more. So. Um, there's a question of moral hazard that I think people are, are very familiar with. Uh, and often um, the talks, unless they remain entirely secret, uh, if you're talking with a political group, uh, sorry, a criminal group, you're implicitly giving them a level of recognition and status. Uh, uh, now, this is sort of an undesirable strengthening of their legitimacy, typically. Um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't go ahead and negotiate. That means you just have to weigh up. Is the potential benefit of negotiating with the group greater than, than the, the negative that comes from, from giving them a certain amount of legitimacy? Um, uh, and then as a negotiator or a mediator, you need to think about, okay, well, how do I mitigate this sort of harm that I'm creating by talking to the group. Um, but to be honest, the, the, exactly the same moral hazard does exist with political groups. Um, so you face a very similar moral hazard where you're worried, am I legitimizing the taking up of arms? Am I, am I by talking to this group and legitimizing them, is it going to encourage other groups to take up arms and choose the path of violence? So it's not a moral hazard that just applies to, to criminal organizations. Um, now, if you do decide that you're going to proceed with negotiations or mediation with, uh, with a criminal group. Um, there are some sort of best practices that I would draw on from, from general political mediation and negotiations too. Um, now, as a mediator, uh, where mediators are concerned, what is critical to how you do your mediation is the concept of impartiality. So as a mediator, you must not take sides um, or must not publicly take a position. Um, now, this may seem strange to some of you if we're talking about dealing with the criminal organizations, but the fact remains that you cannot mediate properly between two sides if you take a position that favors one over the other. Um, uh, and, and for mediators such as us, such as NGOs or, or private mediators, this, uh, this perception of impartiality 
and the trust that you create through that. That's also an essential part of, of, of giving us security through the process. Um, so whether we're talking to Islamic uh, militant groups in Syria, or whether we're talking to organized crime groups in Mali, we need to be seen as trustworthy, impartial, and non-threatening. Um, uh, so that I, I, I would argue that's also that's very important for, for dealing with organized crime groups as well. Um, you also need to be very clear about the objective of your negotiations. So a lot of negotiations go wrong because either the conflict parties don't agree on the objective of the negotiations or the mediator doesn't understand what the real objective is. So that's just one key lessons learned. Another key principle is preparation. Uh, so you need to know your stuff. And there's lots of preparation that you can do, lots of analysis you do, but the key one that a lot of mediators focus on is the question of positions and interests. Um, and I won't go into this in too much detail, but just to sort of sum it up in one line. So positions are the publicly openly expressed uh, uh, positions, views taken by conflict parties, um, but you should never negotiate on the basis of positions because typically they're extreme or more extreme. And typically there's no overlap between the positions of two sides. So there's no room for negotiation, no room for bargain. So what you need to do as a negotiating party or as a mediator is to understand the interests that underpin these positions. And by that, I mean, I'll give you an example. So a position may be that a, a particular group wants independence, but underpinning that is the interest that they want security, they want livelihoods, that sort of thing. So uh, as a mediator or a negotiator, you need to be able to understand, recognize the interests and move the negotiation down to talking about interests. Um, there's also lots of that you need to understand the importance of managing spoilers, setting out and agreeing upon clear agendas, identifying red lines, uh, developing a strong public communication strategy, which I would argue is particularly important in something that feels a little more controversial when we're talking about uh, negotiating or mediating with organized crime, uh, and tricks to build confidence between the two sides who are negotiating is also a key part of, of, of a lot of our work. So. Um, I'll basically I'll stop there, but there's a wealth of lessons out there on on political negotiations and mediation and what works. A lot of which that, uh, I think are very much transferable to the idea of, of of how you best negotiate or mediate when dealing with criminal groups. So thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much, Benjamin, for such an inspiring and and clear presentation. I think this kind of theoretical approach that you mentioned also make the base to start exploring more local cases where most of the issues or most of the things that you have just mentioned take place in the daily actions of mediators working on this topic. So I would like uh, to welcome Juan Camilo uh, before saying that I have been able to get to know from first sight the work that Fundación Liberalis does and the impact that all the violence interrupters and yeah, mediators have done in the neighborhoods in Cali, dealing not only with organized crime, but with violence in more general terms. So Juan Camilo, welcome, and the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Felipe, and thank you to the organizers for inviting us to share our, our experience. I think there is some relation here to what Benjamin was talking about, although we work much more at uh, community level and with um, perhaps much more with everyday uh, conflicts. Um, so we are uh, a civil society organization based in, in Cali, in, in Colombia. Um, and we have been working with a project called Abriendo Caminos that uses mediation 
to address our everyday conflicts in, in several neighborhoods of the city. I'm gonna share um, a few slides with you just to help you get a sense um, of, of what I'm talking about. Um, so first to give you some context, like I think this is important in terms of, of what sort of, of, of where we're working and, and what sort of role mediation has uh, according to this context. So Cali is, is Colombia's third largest city. It is a violent city. So last year we had uh, over a thousand homicides, uh, which is down significantly from what we had seven years ago, which was almost 2000, but it's still uh, a very high uh, rate of homicides. It's almost 50 per 100,000 homicides. Uh, most of these homicides uh, use firearms, um, very, very much concentrated amongst men and, and young men. So 92% of victims are, are men and 69% of victims are aged 15 to, to, to 34. Uh, it's a city also that, that has a, a high poverty rate, which uh, went up with, with the pandemic. So last year, um, it was measured at 36% uh, of the population was living under the poverty line. Um, and there's a very high youth unemployment. So uh, almost a, a fifth of the young population is, is unemployed and very high informality as well. And, and this is all significant because there is a very high geographic correlation between violence, poverty, and unemployment. Um, and this is the sort of neighborhoods that we work in. It, 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 neighborhoods are, are, are poor. Um, often people have a lack of opportunities and, and are also quite, quite uh, violent. And there's an additional factor that's important here, and it's that uh, there's a lack of trust in institutions. So only 30% of victims last year reported uh, crimes, according to the latest uh, security survey done in the country. Uh, and only 26% of people say that they trust uh, the police in urban areas of, of Colombia. So, so summarize that it's it's a violent city with high levels of poverty unemployment and job insecurity um there's a long history of organized crime and here we have a mix um, of uh, organized criminal groups uh we used to have very strong drug cartels in in the city um there is some presence of, of armed groups of, of, of guerrilla groups that make presence in the city but also smaller kind of like 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 gangs and and, and, and cliches cliques uh, uh, that, that do like petty petty crime so there's like a mix of, of, of criminal activity a lack of confidence in security and justice institutions and and a wide availability of, of guns and, and this leads to very often conflict being solved. Uh, with 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 guns and 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 contributing to this very high level of of, of homicide. So how do we use mediation in this context? So like as Felipe was saying, Abriendo Caminos uh, is a project that it's an adaptation of the pure violence model. So mediation is a part of what we do, um, and and it's the part that's involved with interruption and mediation of of, of conflict. But that is complemented with, with other, uh, other activities, especially uh, first supporting high-risk young people, uh, trying to reduce risk factors of them and in getting involved in, in crime. 
And this involves a lot of, of working on income generation, uh, finding employment, education, uh, controlling a problematic drug, use, drug abuse, uh, gang affiliation, all sorts of, of issues that we work with young people. And the third uh, area that we work on is on shifting social norms within the community. So those social norms that kind of like uh, validate the use of violence within communities. Uh, the mediation part is, is what we do in, in what we call uh, violence in, in, in corruption. And it's important here to, to note that, that the first priority when we do uh, mediation or interruption is, is, is saving lives. So, so when there is a, a, a violent incident or a conflict that has escalated within a community, the first priority is making sure that people who are at risk are safe. And that might uh, entail uh, when there is a, a, a fight going on or, 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 or a conflict going on, actually making sure that there's a distance between the, the parties involved, um, creating a distance between them. If it's necessary, even getting the, the police uh, involved just to make sure that people are, are, are safe. Um, how does mediation work? Uh, on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and here we, 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 we're dealing with different types of, of, of conflicts and, and they range um, all the way from, from fights well, within in, in a party or a street fight or a conflict that might be even be between neighbors or between um, uh, an intimate partnership uh, and that might uh, overgrow and eventually could become, uh, could escalate. Uh, so we work with, with Conflicts that might have already escalated, but also with work with, with conflicts that have the potential to escalate. So what, what mediators or, or what violence interrupters do is that they, they will actively try to identify conflicts. And this is very often done by walking around the neighborhood, speaking to people, especially people who, who might be involved in previous conflicts. So, so groups of young people, whether they're gang members or people who have a history of, of being involved in, in, in violent uh, interactions, just speaking to them, listening to them, uh, trying to find out what's what's going on uh, and about within within uh, the neighborhood. When there is a conflict that's identified, and again, this might be at a, at a very initial level, or it might have already escalated, then it's very often important to identify uh, trusted people close to those parties that are involved in the conflict, because the violence interrupter himself or herself might not be close to the, to the parties, but, but they will know people who are close to them. Yeah. Um, so either directly or through those trusted people, make contact with, with those at risk of escalating the conflict or with the direct parties uh, involved. Um, then there is a, 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 they will develop a strategy to defuse the conflict, which will it, it might take different paths, but it will often involve things like, uh, for instance, buying time. So um, if there is an attack going on, if there is a fight going on, then separating the parties and, 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 and just making sure that they cool down um, before like proceeding. Yes. Uh, the buying time is very important there. Um, getting people to control their emotions, and this is a big part of, of, of buying time, uh, just letting people's emotions cool down, but also helping them by letting them talk about it, listening listening with what they have to say. Um, getting the parties involved to reflect on the consequences of, of the different paths that, that, that they, they can take. 
And that way we leave the desire for, for, for revenge for a violent action. So getting people to think um, what might happen if, if they attack somebody else, um, what might happen to them in terms of, of they, putting themselves at risk, their lives at risk, or risking going to jail, uh, getting them to think about what would that mean for their loved ones, for their, their, their mother, their, their father, or, or, or their children if they have children. Uh, so thinking about those consequences, if, if they're not in, in, involved in, in a process of, 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 if they're working and if they're employed or studying, what that will mean for, for, their, for their life. Um, then uh, involving third parties who are close to, to those involved in, in, in the conflict, um, just to get people who are close to them to, to speak to them uh, as well. That's also part of, 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 of what happens. Uh, finding alternative solutions that are non-violent. Um, and especially if, if those solutions can be agreed by both parts and, and, that, and that it can repair uh, harm that has been caused uh, within the, the, the conflict. And this can be done in different ways. It can be through direct dialogue between those involved, or it can be a facilitated dialogue between the two people with, with somebody uh, helping out uh, the dialogue. So once that sort of kind of like agreement has been made, uh, then violence interrupters, what they will do is that they'll follow up on that on, on, on what's going on in that relationship or in that conflict. So making sure that if, if both parties have, have committed uh, to taking some action, that they, that they will fulfill those, those commitments. Uh, but also following up on, on how emotions and feelings are, are, are going, just to make sure that, that, that the conflict doesn't, doesn't kind of like bubble up again later on. Within this work, so, so there's different outcomes that this process can have. And, and so one of those outcomes is that the, a conflict resolved by the parties. The parties are kind of like happy that, that, that they've set aside their differences and, 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 and there's no desire to keep on going with the conflict. Um, there's a second outcome, which is that the conflict has been diffused, but it's still latent. So there's still kind of like some uh, ill feelings and, and a desire for revenge, even though there's a commitment not to take violent action right at, the, at that moment. And the third outcome is that is, is maybe the conflicts are, are just not, not resolved. I mean, the parties just will say, you know, I'm not happy with this. Um, some results that we've had with this work. Um, so so we, we had a, a, an evaluation of, of this project uh, through three years in, of implementation in two neighborhoods. And so we were able to show that when there's a homicide in these neighborhoods, the probability of other homicides in the following week goes down in the areas where the project is working as compared to, to, to other areas of, of, of the city. And the same thing happens with, with violent uh, aggressions. Um, also, uh, there's a better perception of security where the project is, is, is happening. So, so there's kind of like an indirect effect. It's not just on, on the direct conflict, but this, it, it improves the perception of security where the project is, is happening. Uh, and there's more confidence in institutions where the project is, is happening, which in the case of Cali uh, is quite important. As I was telling you, um, there's, there is a lack of confidence in, in institutions often. So just a, a few final reflections of why use mediation in, in, or, or, or kind of like around mediation in, in this type of context that I'm talking about. Uh, first, it, it's important because it, it allows you to address conflict in areas where there's high levels of violence, but there's also a lack of confidence in institutions and especially in police. So some of those more institu institutionalized 
uh, ways of solving conflicts, people don't trust them, so they won't go to them. So having people from the community actually mediate and help solve those conflicts can help bring down uh, violence. Um, it shifts the way that people address conflicts more generally. So once people start seeing that mediation work and that it helps solve specific conflicts, they will tend to, to, to start shifting the, the way they perceive uh, uh, violence as a valid way of, of, of solving problems. Um, but then there's the issue of organized uh, crime being a challenge for, for mediation uh, in, in this context. And I think here it, it, we overlap with some of the things that Benjamin um, mentioned. Um, the first thing is that when there's organized crime in some in neighborhoods, uh, we need to keep in mind that organized crime can benefit from their neighborhoods not being violent, especially because it doesn't call attention upon, upon, upon themselves. Um, so we have been able to kind of like uh, work side by side uh, in areas where, where there is uh, organized criminal groups. And in a way, they know the work that we do and, 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 and they're happy with us doing that, that, that work. Um, the second reason that can be important is that when, when, when police services are stretched, um, it often, they, they're often spending a lot of time uh, addressing minor issues. So minor theft, uh, community uh, fights, um, if these sort of minor issues can be addressed uh, by communities, the police can focus on, on more serious and, and, and organized uh, crime. Um, another issue is that, is that, um, that when you don't have mediation, it kind of like more formal mediation the way we have, um, but, but the police aren't trusted, then organized crime can actually become quite active in uh, mediating conflict. And, and then that brings up a, a further issue of, of, of control within, within neighborhoods. So I think that having this sort of mediation can alleviate uh, that sort of involvement of, of organized crime within in those sort of community um, uh, issues. But then there's kind of like the limits of, of, of all of this. And is that where, whereas very often we're very successful in, in addressing community violence, violence between neighbor, neighbors or even domestic violence. Uh, when there is more instrumental violence, uh, which is driven by organized crime, especially rent-seeking crime, uh, then it's, it's more difficult for that to be susceptible to mediation because it's very, very instrumental. Um, and so we see that when there's fights between criminal groups, then uh, there's limits to, to sort of, of what, what, what we can achieve using this community-based uh, mediation. Uh, so I think I'm gonna leave it there. There's a lot more uh, to say here, but um, we can address some questions in, in, uh, with, 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 um, with the Q&A. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Juan Camilo, for such an inspiring presentation and explaining all the theory that Benjamin started explaining to the field. And here I would like to highlight the importance of having a civic society organization. Acting as this part, uh, uh, impartial part. And following that example, now I would like to welcome uh, Dr. Yvette. Dr. Yvette, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. And 
now we have learned about Cali's experience. Now it will be great to learn and to understand a bit more about Liberia experience. I know that you have a video that you would like us to show. So please let us know if you want to start speaking or do you want to play the video right now? Uh, please start the video. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ibedan. Welcome again. So you. Uh, if you can help me with the video, thank you. Good morning, everybody. And thank you so much for inviting us to participate in this. What you've just watched is uh, police action as late as last week with these disadvantaged youth in Liberia. The first thing is we should remember Liberia is a fragile state. Our security still is a problem. Our security forces still are not really trusted by, by the disadvantaged youth or even by the public as a whole. So what you saw, there was a raid last week that was done in a neighborhood called Douala. And Douala is, uh, is, up, is in Monrovia, which is the capital of Liberia, but it's also one of the neighborhoods in which the youth live. These youth are called Zogos or Zogis if they are women. And they are the disadvantaged young people in the slum areas. These are the youth that the politicians go ahead. And at the time of elections, et cetera, they, they gave these young people $5 or so to go and be disruptive in other people's campaigns. These young people, as a result, are being shot by the police, as you saw with the police just now, not only going after them, but trying to burn down their homes, which they did. They burned those homes down there. And the youth ran, as you could see, in the swamp. The police could not follow them into the swamp because in the swamp, there are areas where there are bogs. And they go, they will, if they step in the wrong area, they will go down in the swamp. However, the youth know the swamps and they know how to jump through it to evade the police. Our question in civil society continues to be, what does the police think that we're going to achieve by this sort of intervention. Okay, there were allegations in this uh, video that you saw. There were allegations that, um, that these youth went ahead and shot someone. The youth came and I wasn't able to show you that part, but the youth came and said that they were not the ones that shot anybody. As a matter of fact, the police shot one of them and came to find out later on that the police Actually, there were more than one bodies. There were about three bodies. And they put these bodies on the main road. When this happened, a riot occurred in Douala. When the riot occurred, that's when the police came in with force. And you saw them now coming in, chasing these young people, chasing them into the swamp and burning down their homes. We know that burning down their, their homes isn't going to eradicate crimes. It's not going to resolve the issue. Because what do you think is going to happen today? What do you think has been happening? The first thing that's been happening is the youth have gone out, organized themselves to steal again, to be able to rebuild what has been burned. So who suffers in the end? We in civil society. We suffer in the end. So what has happened is, the Angie Brooks International Center for Women's Empowerment, Leadership Development, International Peace and Security, of which I am the establishment coordinator, went ahead and had meaningful dialogues with these young people, not, not yesterday, not last week, but way before. We started what, we looked at them and said, 
how can there be a difference? And we engage them in dialogue, in mediation, but in an intervention, which was different. We sat them down and asked them, what do you see can make a difference in your life? And what do you think about moving forward? So a lot of them said, well, if we had money, if we could do A, B, C, and D. And the next thing we said to them, how do we get you to get money? Can, would you be willing to do skills? And they were willing. So for 18 months, we put them in a skills training program. We took 12 communities as a pilot in Libby, in Monrovia, in Montserrado County. And we took 12 communities. And those 12 communities were trained in how to be entrepreneurs. And they knew it was competitive amongst the 12 because we only had funding to fund six. And so those who are going to win, the six that were going to be the best will be the ones that will be funded by us. And they agreed. They then went forward to learn entrepreneurial skills and we call it the Slumpreneur Program. They then did what we call the Slum Pitch Festival. That is, they went before a panel of judges of eminent persons, ambassadors, lawyers, uh, members, CEOs of banks, et cetera, and they came. And these young people had to present their project, their business projects. And the projects had to be under 5,000 US dollars. And it also had to be something that addressed a problem in their community that they were going to resolve by their businesses. Five of, uh, six of these young, uh, these projects actually won. And let me just give you an example so you understand what they were. We had a, a place, I will give you the name of the, of the, um, of the community. And I'll start with Claratown. Claratown did a sanitation hall and they won. And the sanitation hall they did was that they will have a bathroom, three stalls for, uh, three stalls on each side. One side is for men and one side for women. And at the end, they will have a stall to shower. And that resolved their situation because they have no public toilets. They have nowhere to shower. And these young people, you see where they live, and most of them, and lots of them actually live in the market, under market tables. So how do they shower? How do they use restrooms? They don't, they just go all over the place. So that was a way for them to make money and also to resolve their issue. The other one was Caldwell. Caldwell is a huge, is a, a suburb of, of Monrovia and they have a huge problem of garbage collection. So they decided to do garbage collection. Then we had Bentall City and they decided to do soap making because they have a problem with getting sanitation done in their community. New Georgia decided to produce access to pure drinking water and water for other uses because there's no public facility for them to get water or be able to drink on during the day, et cetera. West Point did the collection of waste as well. And the Old Road uh, Community District number 10 did cosmetology. Now, the thing is, these, uh, these young people, after, after they won, they're now going to be able to get the money starting now in December today to be able to do the work. The point is, of course, we cannot give them the money because they would take it and smoke it. They are drug users. We are not crazy. So, of course, we have a finance person who manages this, who manages the funds and manages the payment to the right vendors. However, these young people had to express to us that for the first time, 
they actually saw hope. They actually were in like a box that they saw no way out but through crime, but through violence. And now to see some hope that they can have some dignity back to and that the community is listening to them. It was important in our mediation that we separated them from the other party who happened to be community leaders. And those were the main parties, they and the community leaders. And the community had, been, had really had it up to the neck with these young people's criminal activities and did not want to give them a chance to do anything. But when we sat with them and told them what these young people actually wanted to do and how they wanted to change their lives, they then started to listen and said, okay, let's rethink this. Let's see if we can give them a chance. So uh, we were able, you know, we provided a mechanism for communication and, and negotiation with the uh, elected representative where the support was necessary to advance efforts to improve community relations. An example of these types of processes, including meetings with community leaders to tell them what the Zogos wanted to do, and eventually the leaders offering to help the Zogos business activities, as some communities made available like land in Claritown for construction of the sanitation hall. They actually agreed to sell them the land and other community leaders got the landowner to sell a small plot of land to the Zogos, like in New Georgia, to install a water pump to start a water business. In Caldwell, the business people were willing to have the Zogos, who we now have renamed Aspiring Youth, to be the garbage collectors. So it, the community have come in little by little to be supportive to them. And this mediation was undertaken so that we could be breaching the grassroots and uh, be able to breach them with these young people so that now they have a chance to start all over again. Um, it was clear and the youth were also clear that yes, they had done a lot of things to, um, to their communities. And that is why the communities were reacting the way they were. So, um, so that, uh, that was the situation with the communities and them. And um, we feel that uh, we're not in the field, we know that this, this has been so successful in terms of um, like getting the youth voices heard more importantly, across the board, in all 12 communities, the one thing that they asked for and they were clear about was that they needed a drug rehabilitation center. There is no drug rehabilitation center in Liberia. So Angie Brooks is now looking for a way for us to see how we can get a drug rehabilitation center for these young people, because without it, they cannot move forward. You see the police running behind them in the video, et cetera. Even if they catch them, even, even if let's say they go through the legal process, which they should be doing, because certainly burning the houses isn't one of them. But let's assume that they go through the legal process and they put the, the perpetrator in jail or whatever. What are they going to do with them at, in terms of rehabilitation? Nothing, nothing. So they will come out and then they will be repeat offenders. So there is a need for us to do that. These young people, are, and let's address the root cause of the problem. Let's not forget Liberia is a fragile state. We had child soldiers, and lots of these young people were child soldiers, where they cut their foreheads and put the drugs in them so that they could go ahead and kill people without seeing their faces. 
we agree that some of them voluntarily now took drugs as well. But we have to understand that we as society have not provided a way for them to get clean. Thank you. Yvette, thank you very much for the presentation and a very interesting approach, different than the approach initially mentioned by Juan Camilo in Cali, Colombia. Now I want to welcome Major Oscar Escobar. Uh, and I would like to say that a successful citizen security strategy, strategy requires a lot of leadership. And I think this is what we have here, Major. Thank you for accepting the invitation. And thank you for sharing with us PASO's strategy, uh, as opposite as the other two experience we have heard. This is an experience from the public sector. So the floor is you, Major. Um, if you help me with the presentation, thank you. Thank you very much, Felipe, for the invitation, of course, to the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. And Benjamin, or Camilo, and Ivette for sharing their experiences, which is actually very important of this type of spaces, not only to talk about what we're doing in our cities, but to see the differences and the coincidences that we have with different uh, places in the world. My name is Oscar Escobar. I am the major of the city of Palmira, Colombia. This is the 20th largest city in Colombia. If we can go to the next slide, we have more than 350,000 inhabitants. Uh, there is a lot of sugarcane plantations. This is the city with the most sugarcane plantations in the region. Also, we have the two largest exporting trading zones in the country. We have the third largest international airport. And uh, uh, with all this economic development, we are actually next to Cali. We are 20 minute drive from Cali, where Camilo is. So the in the next slide, we're going to see the criminal context, which is actually very similar to the one in Cali, right? Because we're so so close. Palmira is seven times smaller in terms of population than Cali, but it's twice the size in terms of the territory. So that is a big challenge for us. Um, in Palmira, we have a lot of score setting, as authorities call it, in terms of of killing in between gangs, in between micro-trafficking gangs. Um, of course, uh, most of the death are men. Uh, we have only 22% clarification rate in homicide, which is actually pretty bad in terms of, of justice action. 54% uh, of the homicides are concentrated in young people. So young people is definitely one of our targets. And uh, our goal is to reduce the homicide rate in Palmyra, not only generally from ADA, uh, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll tell you in the next, but also in between very in between young people. So we measure the homicide rate for general population and for young population, right? Colombia is, of course, a country known for its peace process, but, uh, but now that we have sort of come out of that peace process, uh, what I have to say is that the main problem of security for us, for a major like me, is not in the rural area. It's not the, uh, related to guerrillas, even though we still have some problems with that. It's here, it's in, it's in our neighborhoods, is the main problem of security and homicide. So in the next slide, we're gonna see the homicide rate. Uh, it's it's uh, more than the national average, and, and we are the, uh, we are the brown sort of line here. So only Cali is, is uh, here in the main cities of Colombia. 
only Kali is the one uh, that is higher than us, but it's pretty high. So 31.9. It used to be almost 100 or more than 100 uh, de uh, deaths per 100,000 uh, people, uh, but it has come down significantly, but it's, of course, uh, way higher than, uh, than many other places in the world. And that puts us in some of those lists as one of the, the most dangerous cities in the world. In the next slide, we'll see that, as I said, 50%, more than 50% of dead are, are young men, but also 58% of homicide happens in some areas that we have defined as clusters. There are no more than 10, 15% of all neighborhoods in the city are concentrating crime. And so our strategy, PASOS, which is our strategy for violence prevention, uh, focalizes on young people, especially in those territories, in those clusters. Uh, our strategy, next slide, has uh, five components, let's say. One is interruption, then it's intervention, then it's prevention, then it's safe environments, and also access to justice. To manage all this, we can see in the next slide, please. We have, of course, a big goal of interinstitutional coordination. Maybe we skip one, but it's okay. And we're investing at least $1.6 million in order to achieve that. But since here we have been talking about mediation, right, negotiation, we're going to focus on interruption of violence, which is the first of the components of our strategy. Uh, of course, what we look, uh, what we're trying to do there is to stop existing and potential conflicts in the prioritized territories emphasizing in the, inter in the after interruption of the cycle of violence when there is a risk of homicide or confrontation. So we do this through uh, social promoters, as we call them, historians, right? In the next slide you will see. Uh, for example, Evelyn, she is 30 years old. She's in charge of cluster number four. And what she does daily is uh, to identify the necessities of interventions in the clusters, what, what, the, what the cities uh, need to do. We need to go with infrastructure, we need to do with vaccination, what we need to do, what is most important that we should do in that neighborhood. But also very important, the mediation of conflicts that may trigger violence of, of violence or, or homicide, right? And of course, try to generate spaces for dialogue and respect for life to live This is very important because I am the major, right? And we have the police, as maybe Juan Camilo talked about the police and, and how they have really low approval rates in Colombia and all over maybe Latin America. And also, uh, and also Ivette was showing us how in Liberia there's a lot of uh, police abuse. That is no, uh, that is no different from Colombia. We have a uh, huge national strike this year. And of course, in between all that happened, a lot of police abuse happened. And that is really difficult for the institutionality to defend that, right? Of course, we cannot defend any type of human rights violations. And that, in those cases, even though if there are many or, or few, the, those cases really affect our legitimacy, right? We have authority, but very few legitimacy in the territories. Evelyn, she has legitimacy in the territory because she's from that neighborhood. She's one of many people who live there, 
who have suffered insecurity, who have suffered inequality. So Evelyn and all the other promoters are key for us in the mediation, in the interruption part of the strategy. Uh, of course, what is something that Evelyn did? This interruption goes from uh, maybe even the police said, sometimes uh, we know somebody's gonna get killed. Everybody knows somebody's gonna get killed because of uh, some, as I say, score setting between bands. So we even have to like uh, do some interruption. It's like pay them the bus so they leave for another city uh, as, as, as the time goes by. And as Juan Camilo said, uh, the, that violence cools down, right? But of course, I have to say that Evelyn, uh, she was telling us that a, a few months ago, she had to, she was in a, in a place of food, right? Of, of, of uh, street food. And when she was there, somebody came and started shooting at the people who was there. The, the gun of the gunman fell and she grabbed the gun and she threw it away, far away, risking her own life. But that is also an example of how interruption happens in these neighborhoods. In the next slide, as I said, it is very important to, uh, to say that the legitimacy of the social promoter in the territory is key to anticipate and prevent these conflicts and prevent homicide. Of course, micro fo focusing on some territories and also with that ability that the promoter has to persuade criminal or violent actors to de-escalate the conflict. This is very key because of course, police cannot do that. Police has to go and catch them and take them to jail, right? But the social promoter can try to uh, ease and de-escalate the violence as police in the other side has to do their work and justice has to do their work. As I said, we have in the, in the passes, we have 14 social promoters. You'll see that in next slide. Uh, they have uh, mediated more than 550 conflicts, potential conflicts. They have also a big legitimacy because thanks to our alliances, we have been able to, uh, to bring beneficiaries to enter employability and, and entrepreneurship programs, training routes. And we have more than, we have already about 200 of them already in, in training uh, to employability programs, but we have impacted more than 1,464 young people in these territories. And uh, to end, I would like to thank, of course, Juan Camilo is one of our alliances as Compromiso Valle, which is the uh, entrepreneurial sector, the, the business sector that is putting money in order to prevent violence, but also Fundación Barcelona, Despacio, Unidir, Peace in Our Cities, uh, which is a network that we're a member of. All of these international organizations and national organizations are helping us to go to these territories affected by violence and to try to change that first through the mediation and interruption of violence. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mayor Juan Camilo Yvette and Benjamin. It's been a, a great, a great panel to see different approaches, starting from a theoretical standpoint to a daily-based type of mediation and violence interruption dynamics on the field. Uh, we have a question from Mariana. Uh, Mariana, if you don't mind, would you like to ask your question on live? I think Claudio can help us to open the mic for you. So I actually have two questions, uh, one for Yvette and another one for, for Oscar. 
Um, so Yvette, I just wanted to, to ask, following actually one of uh, Jeremy's point in his presentation, if it has been challenging for you to, to give the, the gangs a role in the mediation without giving them too much power. Um, so precisely as, as, as we were hearing before, uh, when they actually take part of the mediation, you're recognizing them as a, as a valid actor. So has this been a, a challenge for you, uh, giving them actually recognition without giving them too much power in, in your mediation or, or work with them? Um, and uh, to Oscar, I wanted to ask, have you have you had any issues precisely with your with your violence interrupters losing legitimacy because of their connection with you as a local institution, uh, precisely in communities when like you are also part of a of a negotiator, you are an actor in the negotiation. So how has it been challenging for you to be a mediator in the same sense, uh, or have they able to keep that uh, recognition within the communities? Thank you, Mariana. Would you like to answer uh, in the order that Mariana asked? So first, I bet, would you like to answer Mariana and then Major, please? Thank you, Mariana, for, for the answer. This is uh, something that worries me very much because even of, of the security of the promoter, right? Of the social promoter. I don't know There's if Felipe can help me. There's a term in Colombia that we say sapo, how do you say SAPO in this context of violence? <laughs> we have always worried that our social promoters are not seen as SAPOs, which is sort of a way to say an informer of the police, right? If they are as somebody who's telling who, what, is, what are the criminal structures doing, of course, they're gonna lose all legitimacy. And, and some of them have told me that we need to come with all the social offer of, of Alcaldia, with vaccination, with concerts, with culture, with arts, with all what people is needing. That gives them a lot of legitimacy. And of course, what bring what gives them legitimacy, as, as I said, of course, I have something that helps me is that I, I am the youngest major elected in the city. So people see me closer and we have a strategy to be closer and to be in the neighborhoods talking to people without so much protocol. So that helps me. But of course, I am the son of a privileged family. I, I cannot compare to a young people struggling with inequalities and with lack of opportunities in one of these neighborhoods. So since I cannot do that, we need the social promoters to be that person who is from the neighborhood, who has uh, members of their family have been killed by gangs, people who have suffered the violence in their own skin. And so that gives them a lot of, 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 of legitimacy. Uh, we have tried and, and we're still working on uh, they're not being seen as police informers, and we're very careful with that because of their security. And what gives them also a lot of legitimacy is not only being from the neighborhood, but also bringing opportunities to people, bringing the good parts of, of, of what Alcaldia can promote and not uh, being the informers of the police. Thank you, Major. Uh, Yvette, would you like to continue answering the question? And then uh, there is a question from Gifty Mensa. Uh, is there any security training done for the social promoters in the various clusters? I would like to uh, ask Juan Camilo to answer that one. But Yvette, the question was posted by Mariana Mora and is following one of Jeremy's point. How has uh, AVIC managed the issue of giving recognition to criminal gangs when they take part in a mediation? How have they balanced needing them to be part of the solution without giving them too much power. Would you like to answer, Mariana? Yes, definitely. And after Yvette, Juan Camilo, thank you. 
Yes. Um, it's, I mean, people may think that giving them recognition will give them more power. But if you don't empower them to go ahead and change their lives, to change their own directions, you're wasting your time. It's not uh, giving them recognition. It may be within their community. But don't forget the communities do not see them as having power in that sense. The community sees them as being violent disruptors and really want nothing to do with them. So even the way in which we, we handle them is that we separate them from the community because if you bring them in, in Liberia, that is, if we bring them with the community at the same time to say we're doing mediation, I can assure you it will be so explosive that we as mediators would not be able to control the situation. So the first thing, let me give you an example of what happened. As we were teaching them entrepreneurial skills, we went ahead and we gave them T-shirts so that they could at least feel, understand where they're coming to, feel a part of something, etc. And they're walking through the communities to come to the hall where we are having, where we are having the um, the skills training for the entrepreneurship. As they are walking, the community is saying to them, look at those useless people. They're absolutely useless. Where do they think they're going? They're nothing but criminals. They're not going to be anything. Why do they think their skill training is going to do anything for them? So when they come into the hall to meet with us, I bring that up. And I said, oh, I'm sure coming here, you all heard comments from the community. And they all start laughing. How did you know? I said, oh, it's obvious. You all have done terrible things to the community and the community do not trust you. Neither do they believe you will be something today or tomorrow. They don't know this the beginning of the rest of your lives. So you have to prove to the community you're somebody. So they go into the community not feeling that they are on top of them, but that they're feeling a part of them. And our program creates jobs because what has happened is they, some of them had been trained for jobs. And I met with our minister of youth and he says to me, oh, counselor, I trained 500 youth. And do you know, most of them, the majority, I haven't even got a hundred that got jobs yet. I said, but how do you expect them to get jobs when there are no job creations? So therefore our program have to use themselves to job creations, which bring them this dignity. And yes, it will bring them a different sense of pride, but it's not one to get out of hand. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Uh, go ahead, Juan Camilo, please, with the question about security training. Uh, I think that also applies for Palmira's case. And the other question related to target homicides. And we have two more questions. If we have time, we will be able to answer. Juan Camilo, you have like one minute, please. Uh, yes, about security training. Well, I mean, the first thing, as, as, as Oscar was mentioning, and violence interrupts, they belong to their communities. They're kind of best place to judge when a situation is becoming uh, um, dangerous for them. Uh, we haven't done security training as such, but we do have some some important kind of like rules of, of, of engagement, if you want to call it that way. Um, so the first one is 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 don't put yourself in danger. If, if there is a, a gunfire, don't get involved I and mean, wait for it to be over and then start your mediation, your, your interruption, get out of, of harm's way. That's the first one. Uh, the second one is uh, our, our mediators, they, they use uh, a very distinctive blue shirt and they've become well known uh, within their communities. And in a way that kind of uh, uh, 
that improves their safety because people in the in the community know them they know who they are they know what they do so when they see them approaching and, and they know who, who who these people are they know they're not uh part of the security apparatus they know they're people from the community they know that that they're mediating and so they they're always wearing the these distinctive uh, uh blue shirts and, and and i think that's that's important um we what we do is, is keep under revision the security situation with the neighborhoods on a constant basis. And so sometimes we have to evaluate whether we want to go forward with community activities or with, with the walk-arounds, uh, depending on this. And we have had times that, uh, when we have suspended community activities because uh, there is a, a conflict between two gangs that involves gunfights on a daily basis that can erupt anytime. So we've decided to, to or, or, for example, when an interrupter uh, has been involved in mediating a conflict and, and they might they might suspect that somebody's angry at what they've done, they will keep a low profile. Um, but those are the sort of kind of like, like strategies that we do in terms of, 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 of safety. Uh, fortunately, we haven't had yet in four years uh, any security, major security incidents with, with violence interrupters themselves. Uh, a further thing that we do is, is uh, so we go and show the program to the police, especially um, the police in charge of patrolling the neighborhood, so that they know who these people are, because very often the police can also be a source of insecurity for some community members, um, so that they know why these people who are dressed with the blue shirts are getting involved in, 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 in conflicts within the neighborhoods and that they respect that and that they can, in a way, even try to, to let them try to solve an issue before the police get, gets involved. So, so that is also important. When the level of conflict has become too, too harsh in some neighborhoods and, and by recommendation from our own violence interrupters, we've asked the police to set up a, a, a permanent presence in, 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 a, in a particular hotspot, for example, uh, while that area cools down. So, so that's another kind of like, it's more strategies of that sort rather than, than uh, security training per se. Uh, and I had a, a question about um, instrumental violence and contract killings and whether mediation can be an effective tool to tackle target killings. Uh, our experience is that sometimes, <laughs> uh, and some sometimes, I mean, sometimes there's a group that just wants to take over uh, a, a drug market that another group controls and they're intent on doing it. And in that moment, it, those type of situations can be very difficult to mediate. But I'll give you an example of, of, of where sometimes mediation can be effective. And it's, uh, I was saying that sometimes organized criminal groups don't want to call attention uh, within the neighborhoods. They, they want the neighborhoods to remain nonviolent because it protects their, 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 their business interests. So very often when, when, when some of the younger kids get out of hand because they're, 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 they're stealing, uh, they're shooting, having shootouts with other, with other young kids, the criminal groups will actually call them to order. And that calling to order can be sometimes killing them. Uh, violence interrupters, and, and this sort of news gets out in the community. People know that somebody's been marked to be killed because they're, they're, they're much of a nuisance locally. Violence interrupters have gone, uh, gone to kind of like the criminal bosses and, uh, and told them, listen, isn't there another way to solve this? You don't have to kill them. 
And so what often happens is that, is that the person leaves the neighborhood for a time, they go to another neighborhood uh, while, while kind of things calm down, or they'll commit changing their behavior, they'll give them some time to, to change their behavior. In that sort of, those sort of instances, um, mediation has worked for, for, for us. So uh, it's, it's a case of, of sometimes it does work, sometimes it, it, it doesn't work. And sorry to interrupt, and so sorry that we were not able to, yeah, to go further with the questions. Uh, Major, you have like 30 seconds to answer about the proof best that you yeah, asked please. me, and then I will wrap up because we need to start the next. Yeah, thank you. Gifty Mensa, uh, one was answering, but he asked us, especially if we have given them, for if, if the promoters have, for example, bulletproof best. Uh, the answer is they do not. And this, I want to show you this picture. This is Brian. He is uh, one of the social promoters from Comuna Uno. He's, he has lost several of his brothers due to violence, to gang violence, to micro-trafficking. Uh, and actually last month, an aunt of him, another family member of his was killed. Uh, I, I, I managed to talk to him like a week ago and I say, do you want to go? Do you want a bulletproof vest? I, I, we need to, we need to, you to be protected. And he said, time to what Mariana's question, he says, I cannot receive that. I don't want that. If I have a bulletproof vest, I am going to lose legitimacy. I am going to look like a snitch. So I don't want it. I don't need it. So that's pretty much the answer. Thank you very much, Major. And I have few better. I have nothing else to say. That was an amazing panel. Thank you for all the amazing experience that you have just shared with us. Thank you to all the assistants for the questions. So sorry for those questions that we weren't able to respond. And we invite you to keep following uh, 24 hours on organized crime during the next like 17 hours. Have a rest, uh, a good uh, day. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.